Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Pat Leahy, and every Friday for the foreseeable future, we'll be bringing you a special Brexit podcast where we'll be discussing, dissecting and trying to make sense of the week in Brexit. Parliament has not been prorogued. This week began with Lady Hale, the most senior judge in the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. She didn't mince her words as she delivered a judgment striking down Boris Johnson's prorogation of Parliament. This is the unanimous judgment of all 11 justices. Yes, obviously this is a verdict that uh, we will respect and uh, we respect the judicial process. I have to say I strongly disagree. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson was forced to rush back from New York to Westminster. Where a furiously agitated Parliament had already reconvened. We must moderate our language and it has to come from the Prime Minister first. Faced with accusations that his language was endangering the safety of MPs, did Johnson moderate his language? He did not. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. At the end of this extraordinary week, Brexit Secretary Steve Barclay is in Brussels for talks with Michel Barnier. And the British government still maintains it can agree a new deal with the EU and pass it through Parliament before October 31st. In a little while, we'll be talking to Nick Gutteridge, a Brussels-based correspondent for The Sun, to find out about how the week's events have been seen over there. But first, I'm joined by our public affairs editor, Simon Carswell. And Simon, you've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting on Brexit, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But first of all, what a week. It was an incredible week. It was a dramatic week. You kind of start weeks when it comes to Brexit thinking nothing can really surpass what we've seen before and then you're surprised and suddenly uh, it's all more unprecedented events coming out of Westminster and the decision by the UK Supreme Court to give Boris Johnson this judicial slapdown was extraordinary. Um, Not just for the language uh, that is used by the President of the Supreme Court, Lady Hale, but also the fact that it was unanimous. It was all 11 judges saying to Boris Johnson, no, you were wrong to prorogue Parliament. It was unlawful, it was void and of no effect. And they basically pulled the rug from under him as to uh, how he suspended Parliament. They didn't get into the fact that he did it for Brexit reasons, but they said they did it. he did it without justification. And, and, and just for people who are only catching up with the, uh, with the events of 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 the week today because uh, hard as it is sometimes seems uh, to understand not everyone is uh, paying as close attention to it as, uh, as 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 you and I are just run through very briefly that uh, the supreme court what, what what the case was about and what the judgment of the court was well, the case was about whether there were legal grounds for Boris Johnson. It was an appeal, I think, it, from it, both the High Court in London and the High Court in Scotland, who had found different ways, but essentially the point at issue was this prorogation or suspension of Parliament 
was it lawful or not? And yeah, so the, the lower the two lower courts had differing views on it, and so it went to the UK Supreme Court, the highest court in the UK, to figure out what was going on here and whether it was legal or not. And the first issue that they asked was, well, the legal question of whether the judges could rule on the case. And Lady Hale came out with the unanimous view of all eleven judges saying this matter was justiciable. So in legal terms, that means yes, it can be reviewed by the courts and it can be determined by the courts. So they set that aside. And in one case, the England, England's High Court, they had said that it wasn't a matter for the courts, whereas the Scotland's Appeal Court had said it, it was a matter for the courts. So they needed to figure that out. Now, they did accept that these were really unusual circumstances and circumstances which have never arisen before and are unlikely to, uh, to rise again. And quite an extension of what traditionally would have been seen as the, the court's role in uh, in 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 supervising the governments, the, supervising the fact that the government acts within the law, I suppose. Yeah, I think the view would have been that that branch of government would have deferred to the parliamentary branch of government and said, "Well, this is a matter we can't interfere with politics." But the the Supreme Court was having none of it really, and, and Lady Hale, on behalf of all the judges, said this was not a normal prorogation, is what she said, and she said it prevented Parliament from carrying out its constitutional rule for five of a possible eight weeks between the summer recess and the Brexit date, October 31st. And what she said about that was it had the effect upon the, fun- the effect upon the fundamentals of our democracy was extreme. And it had the effect frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its con- constitutional functions without reasonable justification. So in judicial terms, that's quite a slapdown of the Prime Minister. It was an extraordinary defeat, not just in the, the fact that the government lost its case, but the nature, the clarity of the judgment delivered, its import, its unanimity and its political political impact because it immediately kicked off this enormous storm. It was massive. And I think the unanimity aspect of it was huge because Brexit, as we know, is about divisions. It's got very tribal. It's got every, are you are you remain or are you leave? And the judge made this very clear that it was all 11 judges. So what that does is it doesn't give any room to the pro-government supporters to say, oh, there's division even amongst our court. No, there's not. The judiciary are very clear on this and rule very clearly on this. So it really prevents any kind of division emerging um, within Parliament, uh, within the Brexit, the, the two warring Brexit camps as to whether or not the judiciary are pro-remain, uh, pro or pro-leave. And so Boris Johnson rushed back to London uh, because Parliament, of course, was meeting on the Wednesday morning because not having been legally prorogued, it was entitled to, to sit. The Speaker called it to sit and there was this extraordinary long session on uh, on on Wednesday. Yeah, and, and it was a brutal session in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the tone. It was the nastiest we've really ever seen the House of Commons. I mean, there's jokes on Twitter of people saying, I'm really enjoying the series finale of Britain, the drama, or De- Brexit, the psychodrama. And you got a sense that you're watching something along that, those lines. This was Parliament behaving in most unparliamentary fashion um, and some really vicious exchanges uh, and blame and finger pointing, particularly uh, the interventions by Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, uh, and also by uh, Boris Johnson himself defending uh, his action. And he really came out, the best form of defence was offence on Wednesday, and he came out and he attacked the opposition for not having the the goal to fight an election. He he goaded Jeremy Corbyn into, well, call a vote of no confidence then. Boris Johnson wants this election. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't. He wants to ensure that no deal is off the table. And uh, that's really, that was the that was the scene setter for those exchanges that we saw in Parliament on Wednesday. And I'm sure lots of people were tuning into them at, at various stages. What struck me about it in Parliament, I suppose, becoming, you know, steadily 
rowdier really over uh, as as Brexit has progressed or not progressed, depending on your point of view. And, you know, it often seems to me like a, a an especially boozed up night at a university debating society. But the difference uh, on Wednesday night, I think, was the element of antagonism and raw nastiness that was in the uh, in the exchanges between the two sides. And that is an increasingly palpable element of the debate. And you just wonder where it is going to bring the UK. Now, you were on the ground uh, over there reporting recently. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I spent the day, uh, the day that Parliament was prorogued, I spent all of that day outside Westminster, Westminster Green, College Green there, and talked to both uh, Remainers and Leavers. And like, the feeling you get from standing around and talking to both sides is that this feels like Britain's nervous breakdown on the doorstep of Parliament. You have people shattered, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of invective throwing around, people aren't really listening to the other side. And actually what we saw on Wednesday was that kind of atmosphere outside Parliament being transferred into Parliament. So the hope that uh, opposition MPs, after such a judicial defeat and a highly humiliating defeat that questions the Prime Minister's authority, that you would have thought that Boris Johnson, once he got off his plane from New York, that he would have gone into Parliament and been somewhat contrite, somewhat apologetic, maybe answering questions as to whether or not he misled the Queen in advising her and giving that unlawful advice as it's now deemed to the Queen to prorogue Parliament. But no, you're the complete opposite. He came out almost Trump-like, almost Trump-like. And this is this is real dead cat strategy, you know, distract from the defeat by 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 shocking your opponents with something else. Explain and dead cat strategy to our listeners well, who are unfamiliar with the work of <laughs> Linton Crosby. The dead cat strategy is, is if there's something you don't want to talk about, you throw this dead cat on the table, something completely different. And that's all that anyone can talk about. And what I thought was extraordinary, and in fact, peop, many people and many observers would come away going, gosh, that was an embarrassing day for Boris Johnson in Parliament on Wednesday. But I actually think the strategy played brilliantly in his favour. You almost forgot Wednesday night from the exchanges that you were listening to through Parliament that day, that he had suffered that Supreme Court defeat the previous day. It was almost forgotten about. It was all about the tone and the rhetoric. And so the dead cat strategy that Wednesday, in my view, worked. And uh, he did. He distracted from what was this hugely embarrassing defeat for him in the court. Uh, And it became all about the tone and the rhetoric. But also, I think it's part of his strategy that in the run-up to this election that he really wants, he wants to run this campaign of people versus parliament, how there's some sort of plot by the establishment. And the establishment can be everyone from the commons to the lords, to big business, to BBC, to the, now to, to the judiciary, because they uh, they have uh, stymied his efforts to prorogue parliament. He wants to create in my view, this strategy of I've been stymied and blocked at every attempt to deliver what you want, the people want, and the majority that you voted for in 2016. You wanted Brexit and I'm being stopped. And I think what you saw on Wednesday was actually the beginnings of what will be a vicious election campaign. But where does the event of this week leave that strategy because Parliament continues to frustrate him. It won't give him this election. He's running up against the uh, the October 31st deadline, a more immediate deadline in a couple of weeks, the European uh, the, the European summit by which uh, by which time he is most unlikely, it seems to me, to have uh, an agreement with the EU and after which, two days after which, legally he's obliged to ask for an extension which he says he will not do. So where does this 
week leave him? Well, as dramatic as it was, I'm not sure it's changed a huge amount. Um, we're kind of still in the stalemate position we were before this week began. Uh, if you look at the results of the court's decision, I think that it has eroded some of his political capital. I think it has narrowed his options in terms of how he can progress his strategy through Parliament, possibly looking for legal loopholes around the Ben Act. This is the act that commits him to extending Brexit if he cannot get it. But the diminution of his political capital this week, if that's what we've seen, and political capital in practical terms means the ability to to bully people into things, to get your way, to, to, uh, to, to, to push things through that sort of forward momentum that is inchoate but hugely important to political leaders. And if that is diminished, as I think you're correct in saying that it has, by this week, that makes frustrating the Ben Act more difficult for him. I think it does. I think any any contemplation on the part of, of Boris Johnson or his administration to look for loopholes around the, uh, the Ben Act to try and uh, get no deal back on the table, to get the possibility of this do and die strategy of, to, of getting... Um, uh, UK out of the EU by October 31st. I th- October 31st. I think that that strategy is in difficulty now. I don't think for a second they're going to contemplate um, maybe looking at legal loopholes that could, be, that could be exposed to further legal challenge in the courts, which are more than likely. I think all of the opponents of a no deal Brexit and indeed Brexit itself will look to challenge anything he tries to do, any any use of loopholes to get around the Ben Act. So I think he's run out of road there. I think his political capital was largely eroded before this week uh, anyway because he had lost his his parliamentary majority. He had, uh, with the 21 uh, rebel MPs that were expelled from the party and the two others that defected, he, he, he has lost his opportunity to find a way through parliament. And I think he wants to get to this election as quickly as possible. So that kind of squaring the circle of how can he still force through Brexit on October 31st but abide by the law where he cannot leave with a no deal. Uh, I think it's still confusion as to how he's going to get around that. And you saw on the scenes in Westminster on Wednesday where he was uh, trying to goad the opposition into calling this vote of no confidence, which inevitably resulted in an election. How were the events of the week viewed in Dublin? The events of the past week in Dublin, I think there was a sense that there was like a vacuum in Dublin. It was like kind of all the air had been sucked out of rooms in Dublin where they're thinking, well, how do we even manage this? And I think the likelihood in the last few days has been felt that there will be an extension of some sort. I know there's a lot of concern in Europe as to whether all member states are supportive of that, particularly the French. The French are very frustrated. Like I've heard talk of, well, French French senior French figures, political figures saying, well, uh, why would we give them an extension if they can't figure it out? Uh, even they shrug and they say, zut. Yes. <laughs> zut allure. What do we do? Um, so they, I, I think the, the, the issue is is that, well, what would it achieve? Uh, if we give a long enough an extension and they hold an election, they think there is a few that uh, a UK general election could result in a hung parliament again, could, may not resolve anything. Uh, or, and, or, or it could result in a second referendum and a vote to remain, which is what the polls tend to indicate. And that is an outcome that would not be welcomed in certainly many parts of Europe, I think. Yeah, I, I I think that any kind of big outcome uh, that might resolve some sort of situation or might break the deadlock would be welcome, whichever way it goes. Um, and whether an extension is going to be granted that would be long enough to allow that to happen. I think there's such division within the UK at the moment. I, I think it's a risk because I think this people versus parliament uh, campaign that Boris Johnson clearly wants to run uh, uh, at the direction of his senior aide, Dominic Cummings, I think they... 
there may be grounds to win over some Remainers. I think whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, a sense that I got from reporting on the ground in the UK is that there were a lot more Remainers who are very frustrated with the process. There's the bigger issues that will maybe our, our democratic voice or our democratic uh, vote is being trampled over. So I'm not sure that it's going to uh, result in the outcome that some Remainers think that, yeah, on reflection, we'd be much better remaining in the EU. Um, I think the strength of some of the views within the UK that I was picking up is, is that there's a lot of people unhappy with the fact that the uh, the democratic vote in the referendum in 2016 has not been honoured. But going back to whether there's an extension or not, I think that you will want to see some sort of definite uh, route that the UK can follow where they can reach some kind of conclusion. I think there'd be a willing, willingness in the UK, in the EU, to allow that to happen, to allow something to reach some sort of closure on this Brexit mess. I'm joined now from Brussels by Nick Gutteridge of The Sun, who's one of the best of uh, a pretty able British pa- press pack out there. Nick, thanks for joining us. What does Brussels make of this, uh, the events of the past week? Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Pat, they're not terribly upbeat about the whole thing, to be honest. Um, saw the extraordinary scenes in Parliament on, on Wednesday night and, and Boris Johnson's appearance and talking to people after that that seems to have been kind of a real sort of watershed moment here where they went, oh, you know, they were really quite shocked by sort of the language and the fact that he was making no attempt whatsoever to to build bridges with, you know, as they see it, the moderate MPs in his own party mm-hmm. and on the Labour benches, without whom he simply doesn't have the numbers uh, for a deal. I mean, the big question everyone's been asking here is they've been, look, is this guy actually serious about the deal? Does he want one? He keeps telling us he wants one, but we're not sure if we can really believe him or actually if he's just kind of running down the clock. I think a lot of people looked at that and went, how can he want a deal and then go out in front of his own parliament and, you know, alienate people? And, you know, we've seen today on the the, the Labour side, some Labour MPs have been saying, <laughs> yeah, it, it makes it much, much harder for them to to support any deal when he's kind of using language like this and stirring up so much controversy. It sometimes seems, you know, to me that there's almost, uh, I mean, of course, this, this isn't the case. Everybody in Westminster knows that all the rest of us get the BBC and we get the British papers. We know what's going on in London. We can watch it in real time. But it almost seems sometimes that people in Westminster forget this. It's it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, yeah, we get sarcastic comments all the time from people here going, you, you know, we can speak English and, uh, yeah, we can watch the TV, actually, and, and read your papers. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's an element that they're incredibly focused on the domestic audience back in the UK because, you know, the whole throughout the whole Brexit debate there, covering it from here, has kind of looked pretty insular. You know, they're, they're having the discussion on their own. And we're standing over here thinking, that's all very well, but when you get here, you're going to find that there are some issues with the decisions and the positions that you are, are coming to. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the... The, the frustrations that, that we've heard is that, you know, there's a, as they see it here in Brussels, a big reality gap between kind of the what's being said in London and 
you know, some of the, the optimism around progress and the reality that they see on the ground here in the, the technical talks, which, yeah, we just had Simon Coveney now, actually, uh, after meeting Michel Barnier, saying, as far as they're concerned, there's still a really wide gap between the two sides. And if anything, things almost seem to be going backwards. That gap almost seems to be getting wider. There was a point a couple of weeks ago where, you know, even people here were starting to think, oh, actually, you know, the, the British are engaging on this, this agri-food stuff and they're going to bring some papers and, you know, maybe they are being serious and we can go somewhere with this. And then kind of as those papers have dropped and the technical talks have gone on, we've sort of seen that sour and people going, oh, you know, um, actually they, they haven't really gone where we thought they would go and they haven't put down as much detail as we hoped, especially on the customs issue uh, is huge. And, um, and time is getting really short in terms of the window for, uh, for, for any deal to be concluded if it's going to be done before the summit on the 17th and 18th because if we assume that nothing substantial is going to uh, be tabled by the British side in these talks until after the Tory party conference, that really gives you barely two weeks before the summit to agree something that, as 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 you say, and it's entirely consistent with the read I get here in Dublin, uh, something to bridge a gap that is still very, very wide between the two sides. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about a really tight window after that that Tory party conference, which people here have been talking about for ages, you know, before the summer months ago, um, people were saying that that date was, was going to be important. Yeah. Realistically, people now are starting to say, well, end of next week, um, for, you know, for the British to kind of come up with something that they view as serious and workable. Uh, cause the point that they're really trying to get across is, you can't just turn up on the 17th and do this thing. I mean, it's it's too complicated and that's not really the way that the EU works. They need to have something that the, the commission can then consult with the, the member states on. Um, and, the, you know, they can, they can draw up. This is a, a legal text after all. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear on the British side that the idea is, well, you know, you turn up at the summits and, you got the leaders in the room, human beings, and we'll kind of sort it all out. Uh, which, if you're a member of the EU, maybe, but if you're, you know, effectively a third country as the UK is now, that's, that's not really how they do things for you. I, I've heard the view in Brussels that Boris Johnson's conception of how the EU works as a as a decision making machine is refers back to the time when he was in. Brussels as a correspondent when, you know, there was 15 members and deals were done in the in the early hours. But with 27, 28 members, that's just not 
possible now. Simon, you wanted to connect. Nick, I'm just curious. Do you think that this gap that's existed between the sides and is still significant between the EU and the UK and questions around whether Boris Johnson has been genuine in believing that is in, in this optimism that he has that a deal can be reached? And these technical papers that are being produced by the UK and talk of possible solutions around an all-island agri-zone and that, is there a feeling in Brussels that perhaps uh, is Boris Johnson publicly stringing the EU along with a view that, well, I'm not going to get my deal and actually the real strategy here is to string it out and to run down the clock and to not get Brexit done so I can go to the people and present the EU as one of this, uh, one of the parties in this convention, uh, in the establishment that's stopping Brexit happening. I wonder how much is that at play in Brussels? Uh, that's one of the things they worry about, for sure. There are kind of two schools of thought. The, the, the pessimistic school of thought is exactly that. Uh, and, you know, there's a certain amount of, I don't know if you call it frustration or, or dismay or whatever it is here, that they have to keep going along with these talks because the EU can't look like it's not engaging with the UK side when Britain says it wants a deal. But equally, at the moment, the way they see it, these talks aren't really going anywhere. So they're kind of having to give the impression that, you know, as long as there are uh, talks going on, the British side can say, you know, we're trying for a deal and, you know, even that we're making progress. Um, but actually, realistically, is the EU ever going to turn around and cut those talks off? Because it really doesn't want any kind of perception that it is to blame for no deal or that it didn't try 100%, you know, everything it could do to get that deal. So, yeah, so of course they, they worry there's a possibility, quite simply, that the UK side are using that. The optimistic take, and I, I think maybe over the last few days, um, there are fewer and fewer people with this, is still that Boris is stringing it out, but that he's stringing it out until the Tory party conference. And after that, he's going to, you know, kind of make a big move and, and make his, his compromise. The view in Dublin, Nick, is that, uh, that the events of this week have probably made an extension more likely in that they think that a deal the prospect of a deal is probably diminished as a result of uh, of this week. Certainly the chances of him agreeing a deal and getting it through Parliament or convincing the EU that he can get it through Parliament, equally importantly, have diminished, but also that his ability to get around the Ben Act has probably been diminished by uh, the blow that he suffered in the, uh, in in the Supreme Court, what's what's your own view of the the effects of the extent of of the events of this week? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's broadly right. Actually, uh, I mean, in terms of extension, first off, I I don't think you will seriously find anyone here uh, who says that the EU won't grant it um, because of what I was just saying about avoiding any you know. Uh, any kind of blame at all for no deal or anything that, you know, you can hook it on and go, the EU didn't try as hard as it can. So I think they will, will grant it. Um, January the 31st looks like a, a reasonable date. Um, someone said, you know, well, we're certainly not going to do December the 31st. No one wants no deal he, on New Year's Day. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, the events, the you know, the, the performance in, in Parliament and to a certain extent, yeah, the, the Supreme Court's uh, judgment as well and, and some of the kind of comments that ministers were 
you know, making about, you know, that judgment and, and the judges here has, uh, has made people here, sorry, think that uh, a deal is much less likely because you're much less likely to be able to find a middle way to do that. They look at Britain and they think, yeah, oh my, it looks more divided than ever um, when you see those scenes. So how on earth are they going to put together a majority for that deal? Um, I also think most people here believe that, that ultimately... Uh, you know, Boris Johnson will will obey the law. I don't think they can conceive of a British Prime Minister yeah. breaking the law in a way by you know by not asking for an extension when that is what has been ordered by Parliament. Nick, we leave you back to it. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Cheers, thank you. So, Simon, conclude then. It it really seems that the action is at Westminster. That's where this story is right now. Yeah, all eyes in London still. Uh, waiting for some resolution, some majority which won't come because there isn't one in Parliament. Um, And so I think what you're going to see is the Tory party conference next weekend to be very, very interesting. But in the meantime, Parliament is still sitting. Parliament would still continue to be the pantomime. It has been and it particularly was this week. And I think you're going to see Parliament used more because it is, as Geoffrey Cox said, a dead Parliament or a lame duck Parliament in American terms, uh, that it will be used for uh, election purposes. And you will see both sides. Uh, Maybe the rhetoric might not be as vicious as it was this week, but they will still be throwing uh, missiles at either side. And um, it will be pretty dramatic again in the coming days, I reckon. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another special Friday Week in Brexit politics podcast. And we'll be back on Wednesday with our regular weekly offering with Hugh Linehan back in the chair. I'm Pat Leahy. It was produced by Declan Conlon. And we'll talk to you next week. 